I got a podium. Like this, did you? You're not as excited about this as I am. Okay. We're going to continue on today in our Unlikely Heroes series. And the thing that I chose this week was heroes are friends that love at all times. And I chose that thing because, you know, truth be told, the most profound heroes in my life are the friends that loved me through the worst of times. And that's not just my story. Probably that's your story. And it's certainly the story of King David, which is who's the subject today. And we're going to, my passage is 2 Samuel chapters 15 through 19. <laughs> and it's an epic sweep, an epic moment in the life of King David. He is at the lowest point in his life. And he survived the trauma of that moment only through the grace of friends who truly loved him. And I'm praying for us that great grace, that same great grace that enveloped David in the story that we'll read about today, that that same great grace would be poured out among us. Now to me, the most interesting part of this story is the fact that David's in a trial by fire and really, primarily, it's his own fault. He is not an innocent victim. I mean, he brought it on himself. This downward spiral in his life started after his affair with Bathsheba. He was confronted by Nathan the prophet. And this is what Nathan said to him. Speaking for the Lord, because you despised me, says the Lord, and took the wife of Uriah the Hittite to be your own, this is what the Lord says, out of your own household, I'm going to bring calamity upon you. You did it in secret, but I will do this thing in broad daylight before all Israel. So David is reaping the violence that he had sown years ago. So if you're watching all this, it would be very easy to say, he made his bed, let him lie in it. He brought this on himself. He's getting what he deserves. This is the judgment of God. I'm not going to get away in the way of the judgment of God. You know what? You know, in, in this, as all that's true. All that's true. But if you'd been in David's life and you thought those thoughts and you sat passively by, you would have completely missed the heart of God. Because despite David's faults and failings, despite his missteps and mistakes, despite his bad and worse decisions, he was still God's man. God still had works prepared in advance for him to do. These troubles that he was enduring, they were from God, but not as punishment. See, that's what we think. It's punishment. It wasn't punishment. God's purpose in the pain was redemptive. And he's using the pain of these troubles to bring this David who's fallen asleep spiritually. He's waking him up. And it works 
in the span of these few chapters, up to a dozen psalms can be attributed to this point in David's life. In response to the pain of betrayal, he actively puts his life squarely back in the hands of God. God had not given up on David. And the good news about that is he's not given up on you either. He's not given up on me. And the way that God communicated that to David in this time of his life was through God-centered, grace-filled relationships. So the hope of God, the vision of God, the forgiveness of God were all manifested to David through the love of friends. And so what's interesting, I'm going to introduce five friends to you, six actually. You're probably not going to recognize a name because they weren't famous. They were friends. That's the power and potential of true friendships. Solomon, David's son, later penned this, and, and I, probably in response to what he's watching, he said this in Proverbs 17, 7, a friend loves at all times, and a brother is born for adversity. That's a little different than um, what Ambrose Pierce wrote. Ambrose Pierce wrote this classic called The Devil's Dictionary, and he defined friendship. This is how he defined it. He said, friendship is a ship. And it carries two people in fair weather and one person in foul weather. Which is it? Okay, here's how it comes down. We're in 2 Samuel 15. If you've got a Bible, you can track it with me. A lot of the scriptures will be on the screen. But in 2 Samuel 15, 13, David gets the news and it shatters his life. His son, Absalom, who's in Hebron, declares war on his father. Absalom is so angry with David that he's ready to steal the throne and he's ready to take his life as well. And that news is bad news. But the way it gets communicated to David is even worse because the messenger comes saying Absalom has declared himself king. And then he says this, the hearts of the men of Israel are with Absalom. And he's in grief and he's in shock. And here's this son that he'd loved so indulgently and so dearly, and he's risen up against him. He's betrayed him. Absalom has proclaimed himself king, and it seems like the whole nation's ready to forsake this aging ruler. Absalom is coming for him. And so David, in response, really out of kindness to the inhabitants of Jerusalem, he flees the city. He doesn't want Jerusalem to be the seat of war. He doesn't want Jerusalem to suffer the famine of a siege or the violence of the sword. So he gathers up his family and those loyal to, to him and they flee for the wilderness. And so they make their way out of the gate of Jerusalem. They're going down across the Kidron Valley and up the Mount of Olives. And David is weeping and his head is covered in shame, and his feet, he has no sandals on his feet, and these are symbols of his mourning and his poverty. And he stops at the crest of the hill on the Mount of Olives, and he looks in review at this line of people that are fleeing with him from the city, and that's when he meets his first new friend. 
And his first new friend, his name is Itai. Itai the Gittite from Gath, no less. And through him, God provides emotional support. He provides just a jolt of encouragement because when Itai meets him, he pledges his loyalty to him, loyalty to him immediately. And this is how, this is how it reads. 15, 19, and 20. The king said to Itai the Gittai, why should you come with us? Just go, go, go back and stay with King Absalom. You're a foreigner and an exile from your homeland. You only came yesterday. And today I'm going to make you wander about with me. And I don't even know where I'm going. So you can, you can see David's faith begin to rise because he, you know what? He needs every sword he can get. And here's a man, another man who's willing and ready to fight. And he says, look, man, just, just this isn't your fight. And just, just go back and just go to Jerusalem and you can be with King Absalom. It's just incredible graciousness because David knows that victory is in the hands of God and no one else. And he, his faith is, is beginning to come alive and it's given him this amazing freedom. And then, and then, and then this is what Ittai says in response. But Ittai replied to the king, as surely as the Lord lives. So he's a believer. And as long as my Lord, the king lives, wherever my Lord, the king may be, whether it means life or death, there will your servant be. He's ready to stand with David to the end. He said, if they're going to put your neck in a noose, I'm going to put my neck in the same noose with you. If the whole world turns against you, I am with you until the day that I die. Who gets friends like that? <laughs> and now God is just sort of manufacturing a new one out of thin air. Like it had to be just enormously encouraging. And that kind of loyalty, it can only be chalked up to the unmerited favor of God. Here's the sad thing about friends. Many of you know this, and I know this from experience. You think you know who your friends are until you have a crisis. And then you find out who they really are. And Itai was one of those. Here's the next set of friends. They provided a different kind of support. It is Abiathar and Zadok. And they provide spiritual support. So these two guys, they're priests. They're pair priests. And when they know that David's fleeing the city, they grab the Ark of the Covenant and they, they take it with them. And so they're at the gate of Jerusalem as the people are filing out. And what they do is they set the ark down and they start offering sacrifices until all the people finish leaving the city. And then David looks at them. And, and once again, you're going to see his amazing faith. The king said to Zadok, he said, look, take, take the ark of God back into the city. If, if I find favor in the Lord's eyes, he, he'll bring me back. And he'll let me see it in its dwelling place again. 
But if the Lord says, I'm not pleased with you, then I'm ready. Let him do whatever seems good to him. I mean, David knows that he's brought it on himself. He's given his life back to God. And whatever God wants to do is what God will do. But then he says this. This is where it gets kind of funny. The king said, okay, I need the next one. There it is. Okay. The king said to Zadok the priest, <laughs> he says, do you understand? <laughs> so, like, there's a little subtext going on. <laughs> then he explains it. He says, look, okay, go back to the city with my blessing. You and Abiathar return with your two sons. I'll wait for you at the fords of in the wilderness until word comes from you to inform me. So Zadok and Abiathar took the ark of God back into Jerusalem and stayed there. So, so here's what happened. David looks at the ark of God and he trembles. I mean, it's one thing to lose a king. It's a whole nother thing to lose the ark of God. If the ark of God was lost to the nation, that would be, that would be defeat for Israel completely. It doesn't matter who's king. The ark needs to remain in the city as a symbol of the, and, and the reality of the Lord's rule over that nation, regardless of who the king might be. And so it's an act of faith and complete abandonment. He says, go back. But then he says, can I have a favor? <laughs> he says, look, will you run a little interference and intel for me? Because uh, I, I need some people to gather information and I need to find out what's going on in the city. And so you both have sons, let them be runners. You figure out what's happening, tell your sons, let them run out into the wilderness, into the fords and meet me there and keep me informed. And so this is why I love David. He's so complicated. Like the, pure faith and cunning strategy are like just hand in glove for this guy. He's just a, a complicated character. I'm going to try again. Ooh. So in the middle of this deep, deep grief, he's developing this network of, of intelligence agents and military advisors that lets him outflank Absalom at every turn. Next up is a different kind of friend. And this is, guy's name is Ziba. And Ziba provides material support. And so what happens is, you know, you have this large entourage. They're leaving the city. They were unprepared to go. They've got nothing to eat, nothing to drink. They're on the run. They're physically exhausted. They're emotionally exhausted. And they haven't even started the fight. And so... God sends Ziba. And when David had gone a short distance, it's the 16-1, beyond the summit, there was Ziba, the steward of Mephibosheth, waiting to meet him. And he, he brought a string of donkeys, saddled and loaded with 200 loaves of bread and 100 cakes of raisin and 100 cakes of figs and a skin of wine. He was a Merlot guy, I guess. <laughs> And so David, David looks at him, and, 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 and this is what he says. Um, 
he said, what, what, why, are you, why are you bringing this? And so Ziba, I think, doesn't understand the question completely. And he says, well, the, of course, the donkeys are for the king's household to ride and the, the bread and the fruit are for the men to eat and the wine is to refresh those who become exhausted in the wilderness. And David says, uh, no, that's not exactly what I meant. Why did you bring it? In other words, he says, where's Mephibosheth? Like you're the steward of Mephibosheth, Where, where's Mephibosheth? So there's a big backstory Mephibosheth is the sole descendant of King Saul. So in that day, when you took the throne of a rival king, you know, you were obligated, it's pretty much demanded that you not just kill the king, but you kill everybody who's in line for the throne. Because if you don't do that, it's going to be trouble forever. But David had made a promise to Jonathan not to do that. And Mephibosheth is the only one that's left. And so he goes to him and instead of killing him, he gives him land, he gives him wealth, and he lets him live in his home. And he's at the family dinner table. He just shows him extraordinary kindness. So he's like, where's Mephibosheth? Why is he not here? And this is what Ziba said, I quote, he's in Jerusalem. Because he thinks today, today, the Israelites will restore me to my grandfather's throne. Oh my, are you kidding me? You got Absalom declaring himself king and now you got Mephibosheth declaring himself king. Mephibosheth is thinking, they're just gonna get so sick of the house of David, they're gonna throw all of them out and I'm gonna be king. What a stab in the back. So David's, Finding out who his friends were and who his enemies were too. But, but, but Ziba gives David this enormously perfect, wonderful gift. So looking back on my life, at the lowest point in my life, even my car seemed to kick me when I was down. Because, I mean, literally, I had nothing flat broke, and my car died. And I had a friend, his name was Zeba. I called him Bill. <laughs> <laughs> and he gave me a pretty dented 15-year-old blue Astro minivan. <laughs> and that car was nasty. I'm just, the air conditioning didn't work. And to make matters worse, the driver's side window didn't work either. And literally, when I would make sales calls that year, I would park a store away and walk. Because if anybody saw me get out of that car, <laughs> They'd be like, oh my God. It was the sweetest gift anybody has ever given me in my life. Because of when it was given to me. That was Zeba. I just want to say, don't underestimate the power of a simple 
gift, a meal, a ride, a gift card, just simple, practical, powerful ways to say, I love you and God has not forgotten you. Ittai, Zadok, Zeba were getting David through the moment. But it was the next guy that helped him win the war. And his name was Hushai. And Hushai provided strategically. So David's fleeing the city. All this is happening is he's going across the Kidron Valley and up the Mount of Olives. And, and one of the worst pieces of news he got in that moment was that Ahithophel, who was one of David's like inner circle, a high ranking, powerful member of David's court had been recruited by Absalom. And he was now in Absalom's inner circle. And you just think, why would you do that Ahithophel? Why would you betray David like that? You've been together working for years. And then I read the genealogical table. Ahithophel was grandfather to Bathsheba. Uriah was a former family friend. And he was waiting for a moment when David was weak and it was time for payback. And David got so concerned when he heard about Ahithophel, Ahithophel's worth 10,000 men. He's that kind of guy that he prays. And this is what he prays. So David prayed. Now he's on the run. It's not a long prayer. <laughs> he, just, he just said, Lord, turn Ahithophel's counsel into foolishness. Now, one verse later and about 15 steps later, enter Hushai. What happens is this, David's at the summit. David arrives at the summit where people used to worship God. Hushai, the archite, was there to meet him and his robe was torn and dust is on his head. He's mourning in solidarity with David. He's, he, Hushai is also a high-ranking official on par with Ahithophel. So David looks him in the eye. This is what he says. He says, Hushai, I love you, man, but you're not a fighter. In fact, if you come with us, you're just going to be a burden. <laughs> That's what he says. So, so I have a different idea about what you should do. I want you to go back to Jerusalem. And then he tells him what to say. Uh, sorry, he says this. Ah, okay, something there. He says this. He says, tell Absalom, I was King David's servant, but now I'm your servant. So he says, go back and pledge your loyalty to Absalom, and then you can help me frustrate Ahithophel's advice, which is exactly what happens. So Absalom goes into Jerusalem. He summons his inner council. He, he, summons, uh, he summons Ahithophel, and he says, hey, what do you think we should do? And this is what Ahithophel said. Now, I'll just, this is 1623, 2 Samuel 1623. The advice of Ahithophel was like that of one who inquires of God. Like, this is how both David and Absalom regarded all of Ahithophel's advice, it says. So he was as wise, as cunning, as strategic, as insightful as they came. So he says, hey, 
Ahithophel, what do you think we should do? And this is what he says. David's on the run. He's weak. He's vulnerable. Give me 12,000 men. I will go tonight, right now. We need to strike now while he's weak. I'm so confident that we'll win. I'll lead the charge. We'll only kill David. We'll bring all the people back. And they, they, they sit around and they go, that sounds like a pretty good plan. And, to, and, then, and then Absalom says, I, I wonder what Hushai would say about this. And so he asked him, and this is what Hushai said. And this is, my friends, this is a piece of beauty. This is what Hushai says. He says, you know, the advice that a hit the fellow's given you, I mean, it's normally awesome. It's, it's not good this time. You know your father and his men, they're fighters. And as fierce as a bear robbed of their own cubs. Besides, your father is an experienced fighter. He, he's not going to spend the night with the troops. Even now he's hidden in a cave or some other place. You're not going to find him. So let me advise you. And what he does, he just plays to his ego. He says, let all Israel from Dan to Beersheba. I mean, as numerous as the sands on the seashore be gathered to you. Let all the people come and bow down to you with you yourself leading them into battle. Why let Ahithophel get the glory? You need to lead them in battle. Take the time, gather the people, and then we'll attack him wherever he may be found. And we will fall on him like the dew settles on the ground. And they listen to that and they go, hey, that sounds even better. Now, here's the interesting thing. When Ahithophel heard this, that they had chosen Hushai's advice, do you know what he did? He got on a donkey, went to his hometown, got his things in order, and hung himself. Because he knew at that moment it was over because he really did have an amazing mind. Hushai won the war. And here's the fifth and last friend. His name's Joab. And here's how our story ends. War ensues. <laughs> Absalom, if you know the story, this is why I love the Bible. You just, this is like made for TV. It's a, it'd be rated R, but other than that. Absalom's riding, and he apparently has a big head of hair. It's like a big hair. And he goes under a large oak tree, and his hair gets caught in the branches. But the donkey keeps going. And uh, he's just hanging midair. Right, and that's where Joab finds him, and Absalom takes three javelins to the heart. Absalom's dead. The war's over. David hears the news, and he is undone. He is overcome with grief. The king was so shaken. He went up to the room over the gateway, and he and he wept. And he said, my son, Absalom, my son, my son, Absalom, if only I had died instead of you. Oh, Absalom, Absalom, my son, 
my son. And for the whole army, the victory that day, when they saw David mourning like that, the day was turned into a day of mourning. Because on that day, the troops heard it said, the king is grieving for his son. And all those soldiers that went in to fight on his behalf, they stole into the city that day as men steal and who are ashamed when they flee from battle. Because the king covered his face and he cried out loud, oh, my son, my son, Absalom, Absalom, my son. He's just lost in the grief of emotions. And Joab, Joab comes to him. And Joab is the guy that can speak the truth to him. And this is what he said. You have humiliated all your men who have just saved your life and the lives of your sons and your daughters and the lives of your wives and your concubines. You love those who hate you and you hate those who love you. Now get out and encourage your men. And he just tells him the truth. It's not the truth that David wanted to hear, but it was the truth of what David needed to hear. And, and it's what he needed to do. And it's what he did. God provided Joab. So here, here's my sum up. You know, David didn't fight. God saved the kingdom. God saved the kingdom and he did it through friends. Loyal, grace-filled, God-honoring friends. He provided emotionally through Itai. He provided materially through Zeba, spiritually through the two priests, strategically through Hushai, and mentally through Joab. You know Psalm 23? I actually, this is what I think, okay, I can't prove it. But when I think of the context of the setting of Psalm 23, I think this is, this is when it was written. These are the events that David is talking about. Though I walk through the valley of the shadow of death, I will fear no evil. Your rod and your staff, they comfort me. Enter Zeba. You prepare a table before me in the presence of my enemies. That's what friends do. They leave us feeling comforted. God-centered, grace-filled friendships are not optional if you want to live vibrantly for God. Here's the truth about the church. You can go online today and you can hear a hundred messages that are fantastic, can't you? You can download some music today. I mean, God-inspired like no holds barred fantastic worship music and you listen to it 24-7, can't you? You don't have to come to church to get that. But if you want true community, you can't get that through the media. This is the only place that's going to happen. And our lives are filled with bumps and bruises, aren't they? Ups and downs. I believe that it's true in our life 
We need friends if we're going to get through. Behind every strong marriage in this room is a group of friends behind it, supporting it. Behind every kid that grows up in the Lord, just like Jenny was talking about, there's a community of people. It literally takes a community for that to happen. And so what happens to us when cancer comes? When our marriage is on the ropes? What happens? When disappointment is just overwhelming us, where do we go if we don't have friends who love us? And not just love us during the good times. Friends who love us at all times. Because a brother and a sister are born for adversity. We want to do everything we can to encourage strong, grace-filled, God-honoring relationships. And that's why we're starting small groups. We're going to call them life groups. Because Jesus said, I've come to give you life and that you might have it to the fullest. And that's our desire for you. I'm excited about it because we're going to mix everybody up. And you're going to make some new friends. Our heart's desire is that those life groups would be places where you're supported emotionally. You're supported materially. That we help each other when we're in need. Right? It, it's a place where people speak the truth in love and help us to rightly divide the word of truth. We desperately need those things if we're going to get through. I know that you need that. I know that, you know the interesting thing is? A, a lot of you New Path people, you know exactly, you've lived it. You're the loyal friends. You've supported Pastor Jim You've been in it for the long haul. I so admire you. I just want that to happen for everybody. So what we're asking for is an hour and a half every other week. That's it. We're going to roll them out mid-September. You'll hear more about it later. But today I wanted to say it because I wanted to put it in context of why we want it to happen. And what we're hoping for through it happening and how vitally important it is for you that it does happen and for others. Because I know that doesn't sound like much, an hour and a half every other week, but that's all that it takes for you to get to the place where you can be a hero in somebody else's life. You know, my prayer, this is the question. The question the text begs is what kind of friend will you be? What kind of community will we be? When the Holy Spirit was poured out in the book of Acts, one of the things that was said about them is great grace was on them all. That's our prayer. That's our prayer. And we pray that God uses this as a way to bring that to fulfillment. So would you pray with me? Thank you, Lord. Thank you for the powerful stories of scripture. They're so ugly and beautiful, just like our own lives. So complicated. All these relationships intertwined and these moments of support and betrayal and we've all felt it and we all live it. We all wonder who we can trust. I just pray, I, I pray that as we launch these groups that they would become places that are full of life so that when life comes, 
We're supported by friends who are, in fact, God-centered and grace-filled. Lord, let it rain. Let your grace rain. In the name of Jesus.